0: This is the East TraumaCast.
1: TraumaCast.
0: With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota.
1: And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
0: This program is brought to you by
1: the online education section
0: of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of
1: Trauma. Advancing science. Fostering relationships. And building careers. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to another East Town Hall TraumaCast session. Uh, this is Matt Martin. I'm the chair of the East Online Education Section uh, and I'm here with my co-moderator, uh, Dr. Andrew Bernard. Uh, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thank thanks, you. Thanks
0: for the invitation. Uh,
1: we are really excited today to have a, a very interesting topic. We're going to be talking about sham peer review, which, uh, as I think we'll, we'll come to learn, is becoming an increasing problem that many physicians are facing. Uh, and we are fortunate to have probably one of the nation's top experts on this topic with us, uh, Dr. Larry Huntoon. So thanks a lot for joining us, Larry.
2: Thank you for giving me the
3: opportunity to talk with your surgeons about this uh, important problem, and thank you to the physicians who are taking time out of their busy day to participate. Uh,
1: so so we'll start off with that first disclaimer. Uh, you are not a surgeon, uh, but you are a physician. Uh, but. It's, uh, it must have been a somewhat interesting path that, that led you to becoming a national expert in this topic. Uh, so we'll just start off with with how did you get involved in this topic and, and, you know, become such a part of your career?
3: Yes, I should say I'm a neurologist, and uh, I'm also not an attorney, so I don't give legal advice. And the way I got involved in this was through AAPS, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, back around 2003 or so, we started to get a lot of calls. From positions throughout the nation about abusive uh, peer review. And we also noted that uh, Steve Tweets, who's a reporter with the Pittsburgh Post Gazette, has uh, spent about a year uh, developing and investigating and publishing articles on uh, abuse of the peer review process and retaliation against physician whistleblowers. We noted those two things and we decided that we needed to get involved in the investigate this thing known as Sham peer Review and do what we could to uh, to help provide helpful information to
0: uh, physicians. Larry, thanks for joining us. This is quite a treat. And, and Matt, your ability to generate intriguing uh, topics for this TraumaCast series is is incredible. Larry, how prevalent is this? How how often are you getting uh, calls from physicians? How prevalent is this in a given institution or in a given state?
3: Yeah, it's hard to come up with exact statistics, but I can tell you that I get calls every single week from physicians who have been
0: victims of sham peer review. I know my partner has personally, just since this, this topic has come out on the East website, I know my partner has personally reached out to you, or his attorney has, to deal with exactly uh, such a problem as what you described. And I I do
3: receive calls from attorneys also who represent physicians, uh, some of whom may not be real familiar with uh, sham peer review and how the peer review process works in hospitals. As most of you probably know, it's a quasi-legal process, so the things that attorneys learned in law school about the rules of evidence and whatnot don't necessarily apply in hospital uh, hearings. Yeah,
0: that's a great term quasi legal there are a lot of lawyers involved in these things um, but but the way these proceedings go down are are not the way they would go down in court. That's been my observation
3: yes, and there are in fact law firms which basically teach hospitals and uh, medical staff leaders how to do this <laughs> abuse of the peer review process and they offer seminars you know around the country, usually at posh resorts or you know, twenty five hundred dollars ahead to go learn how to do these things.
2: So, so Larry, let's talk about
1: tactics that uh that you've seen used in these things and, and it sounds like they're pretty consistently used. Uh and one you talk about is ambush tactic and, and secret investigation. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh how that works?
2: Well, the
3: ambush tactic is fairly self-explanatory. Usually the way that occurs is the physician is invited to a so-called informal friendly meeting in the CEO's office, and the physician is not told ahead of time what it's about or who's going to be there, and the physician shows up and finds himself sitting across the table from the CEO, the hospital's lawyer, the chief of staff, the chief of the department that he's in. And they know exactly what it's about, and they're prepared to sort of prosecute it. And they leave the physician in the room sort of fumbling to find a way to respond because he hasn't had an opportunity to, to prepare for that.
1: And and then what about the, the secret investigation tactic?
3: Well, the secret investigations, a lot of physicians may not know, but hospitals are allowed to uh, basically conduct secret investigations, where they might send charts out for an external review that the reviewed physician knows nothing about, and sometimes these uh, secret investigations go on for months, or in some cases, more than a year, and the main thing that physicians have to know about these secret investigations is if the physician feels that things are not going good at the hospital and the physician wants to resign from the hospital, If the physician resigns while one of these secret investigations is still open, the doctor gets reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, and at that point his career is either ruined or over. So secret investigations are are very important, and if a physician decides he or she wants to resign from the hospital, very important for that physician to have his attorney write the hospital and confirm that there are no open investigations.
0: Well, Larry, one of the questions I want to ask is about how the National uh, Physician Provider Data data Bank works, but but first, can we talk a little bit about what the motivations are? Are are, are these all simply based on a, a goal of liquidating an individual provider for some reason? What's the usual basis? And I realize the basis can be purported to be one thing and can actually be another thing. Right. Well,
3: of course. In every case of sham peer review, the hospital alleges that it has to do with quality of care or patient safety, but the underlying motives in sham peer review are many. They can be such things as retaliation against the physician whistleblower. They can be anti-competitive. For example, if the physician decides he or she is going to open an MRI center and compete with the hospital, Hospitals don't like competition, so they may seek to find some way to eliminate that uh, position. And uh, personal animus can certainly be another one. Uh, Discrimination we have seen. Uh, uh, Professional jealousy. There's just a lot of uh, improper underlying motives.
2: So
0: those are all the underlying motives and then the, the ultimate goal is to create a case of peer review against the clinician as a step in the process of getting the physician out the door. Yeah,
3: it's not just getting the physician out the door. It's putting a stake through the physician's heart so that the physician does not get up again and practice anywhere else because the outcome of an abusive peer review is, again, that the physician gets reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank and that effectively either ruins the physician's career or in many cases totally ends the physician's career because that physician cannot usually get on staff anywhere else.
1: So Larry, what what would you recommend for the physician who gets called into one of these friendly chats and then suddenly finds it's turning into a uh you know, we have these charts and and why did you do this and you know we're going after your credentials meeting? Should you just get up and walk out?
3: Well, I think the First thing is, is the physician should ask and maybe have his attorney write to the hospital and say, what is this meeting about, what are the issues, and who is going to be there? It's also very important when you see something like this to realize, although it's couched in terms of this is just an informal, friendly meeting, it's usually anything but that. And it's very important for the physician to get a knowledgeable attorney Involved early on in these cases, so that their rights can be protected. That's that's a most important thing to do.
1: Okay, and then one of the next tactics you talk about is depriving the physician of records needed to defend himself. Um, so, so uh, so how does that work, and how are they stopping these physicians from accessing the records?
3: Well, the the goal of that particular sham peer review tactic is is to leave the physician fumbling at either the peer review hearing or whatever the uh, peer review interview process is. And so what they do is the hospital, in some cases, won't provide, like, the patient records that the physician needs to be able to review so as to defend himself. So the physician gets at the peer review hearing and has not been provided with those patient records, which are at issue, and they provide them To the physician at the meeting, and sometimes these can be hundreds of pages, and obviously the physician, you know, doesn't have adequate time to review those so as to respond, and it makes the physician look guilty. He's trying to come up with an answer at the peer review hearing as to what he did in a particular patient case, and, you know, he just doesn't have a memory of it. Maybe it happened a year ago or two years ago. And uh, so it's, it's a tactic that's designed to make the physician look guilty.
0: Larry is this is this always about um about content that's in the medical record it it must not be because there are things that can be in a physician's file that can be pulled out at a time when a physician potentially uh, didn't even realize that there these things were even in their file should a physician see what's in their file uh uh, I'm putting file in, in quotation marks there, and and the, is it appropriate for anything to be entered into a physician's file in a disciplinary matter that they haven't seen? Could that happen to a clinician, and how would they respond to that if that were part of the evidence being used uh, against them?
3: Well, that does unfortunately happen fairly frequently where some complaint will be lodged against the physician. And that complaint is put in the physician's credentials file, and the patient or the physician doesn't know about it, never had a chance to respond to the complaint, whether it was from a a patient or a a nurse or or someone else in the hospital. So it's important when the physician believes that he's under attack or about to be attacked that he take a look at what's in his uh, credentials file. Now, when you request that, a lot of times hospitals will balk and they don't want you to see what's in your own file. They'll cite confidentiality reasons, but there is no confidentiality issue when it comes to looking at your own file. And uh, that's important to do. Realize that when you look at your file, in most cases the hospital will not allow you to make a copy of the file. Uh, You can't take notes. Uh, oftentimes you'll be required to look at the file in the medical staff office with someone looking over your shoulder to make sure you're not copying it, taking pictures of it, or taking notes. But it is important to see what's in that file, particularly if you perceive, you know, there's a, a abusive peer review process coming or if one's already been started.
0: Well, the notion that you wouldn't have ready access to your own file and ability to create a copy of that is... That's bothersome. That it's seems pretty scary to me.
3: There's nothing fair about that, nor is there anything fair about withholding patient records that you would need to defend yourself. And you also asked if every if it always had to do with something in the medical records, and the, the answer is no. Sometimes it has to do with uh, professional conduct, and uh, the disruptive physician label is probably one of the most abused labels in hospitals today. And that also can result in a report to the National Practitioner Data Bank.
1: As, so, so, Larry, another thing you, you just touched on is is when they bring standard of care up, and, and they'll often misrepresent the standard of care. So, so can you talk a little bit about that, about what standard of care actually should mean and how it's being abused?
3: Sure. And that's something I think that uh, affects surgeons uh, to a large degree. And uh, here's the way that goes. Uh, they've decided they want to get rid of a particular surgeon, and uh, they will, the hospital will hire an expert who will uh, provide a report and testify that the surgeon didn't do it the way that he would have done it, and therefore that's practicing beneath the standard of care. But as your surgeons know, there can be more than one legitimate way to approach a particular surgery, and that's Uh, If someone does it differently than someone else, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a standard of care issue. It may simply be a legitimate professional difference of opinion. But unfortunately, the hospital will misrepresent that. The external review uh, who says that you didn't do it my way, so it's beneath the standard of care, they will misrepresent that as the standard of care and then take an adverse action against the physician's privileges.
1: And, and does the physician have have any option of introducing their own expert, saying, "Well, well, yes, this was the standard of care"?
3: They do, and they should hire their own expert to review the cases that are at issue. And uh, sometimes that makes a difference. But uh, unfortunately, if it's truly a sham peer review, oftentimes that doesn't make a difference because the hospital already has in mind what they want to do to the physician, and they may simply ignore any experts that are hired by the physician to provide an opinion that it was within the standard of care.
2: Well,
1: and, and it almost seems like you know, in a court, you you have your day in court, and you have certain rights that are protected, and, and it seems like you have significantly less rights in some of these these uh, proceedings uh, that I've seen. Uh, in fact, I, I've seen many where you're allowed to bring a lawyer, but the lawyer is not allowed to say anything or, or really have any part of the proceedings. Uh, Is that a pretty common practice?
0: Well, uh, unfortunately,
3: yes, there are some procedures in the hospital where the bylaws say that, yes, you can be represented by an attorney, but he has to sit there and keep quiet. And and there's nothing that's uh, legitimate about that. It says in the Health Care Quality Improvement Act, which is the federal law that governs uh, peer review, that you're entitled to be represented by an attorney. And an attorney can't represent you if he's gagged (laughs) and Forced to sit there and not say anything. So, unfortunately, due process is uh, often violated in these sham uh, peer review cases.
0: Larry, you touched on the issue of uh, charges against you that might be in the form of disciplinary actions or complaints from others. Sometimes these can be trumped up charges. And you touched on the the topic of bylaws. I'm the current president of our medical staff, and, and in that role, I've become intimately aware that the devil is in the details when it comes to bylaws. No one reads the bylaws until there's trouble, and when there's trouble, the bylaws become very, very important to you and very, very important to these cases because, as you say, they may dictate uh, how you are able to respond, how you are able to be represented, what the technically the legal process is for you in these sorts of allegations. Can you comment on trumped up charges, false charges, and how the proceedings within a given institution may vary according to the bylaws?
3: Uh, well, I think the first thing uh, that's most important is unfortunately. Many members of the medical staff are penny-wise and pound-foolish when it comes to medical staff bylaws and revisions of medical staff bylaws. What happens oftentimes is the medical staff will allow the hospital's attorney, that is the attorney that represents the hospital, to revise the bylaws, and that way, you know, they don't have to pay anything for that. But unfortunately, when that's done, the bylaws, the medical staff bylaws are revised in a fashion which is highly favorable to the hospital and may be highly adverse to physician due
2: process.
3: So the first thing is is when there is any uh, revision of the medical staff bylaws, the medical staff needs to go out and hire its own independent attorney to review those uh, medical staff bylaws revisions. The other thing, the second thing to know is, and this may shock some physicians, that the Fifth Circuit Polliner decision, that's P O L I N E R, basically said that hospitals don't have to follow their own medical staff bylaws when it comes to providing peer review in order to obtain absolute immunity under the HICLA law. So, unfortunately, due to that court's decision, You know, you think you have all these uh, supposed protections in the medical staff bylaws. The hospital doesn't have to follow those in order for the hospital to get immunity. And, yes, there are totally, I have seen totally false charges brought against physicians, certainly trumped up charges against physicians, and they are used to prosecute the, um, the peer review against the physician. So those things absolutely do occur, in my experience, the people, the physicians, and administrators involved in the sham peer review process have no problem with bringing false charges against physicians as long as it achieves the goal of basically ending the physician's career.
1: Why don't we go real quickly? One of our listeners, actually, one of our co moderators has a question. Kevin, uh, I think you're unmuted. Go ahead with your question.
2: Hi, uh, hi this is Kevin Day from Yale School of Medicine. Thanks for taking my question. Um, so Dr. Hunt, my my question is, I have served on trauma peer review committees before, and my understanding is that for an official peer review process hearing to to occur, it has to be uh, given no, written notification. So what compels any physician to just show up in an un, or informal meeting, uh, as you're suggesting? and And the second part of that question is uh, if if uh, don't most hospital bylaws, require that a very detailed paper trail uh, be kept for anything to be reportable to a national database?
3: Well, yes. Uh, If you look at your own medical staff bylaws, you'll see that uh, written notice is required of a a proposed or recommended adverse action against a physician. Usually it has to be sent certified mail return receipt. Usually it has to specify the specific charges Either omissions or commissions that were made by the physician that uh, underlie the recommendation for the adverse action.
2: And the second part of the question was what? Uh, the second part is, um, you know, if most, if most hospital bylaws require that a very detailed paper trail be kept for anything to be reportable to a national database, I guess I'm just having a hard time envisioning how this is carried out uh, in in a hospital setting. The Champeer review, that is.
3: Well, hospitals do uh, create a paper trail to support what they do and realize that that's where a lot of these um, either secret investigations or complaints that are in your credentials file that you know nothing about, that's that's where those come into play because the hospitals that have an idea they want to terminate a particular physician, they'll save those things up. And then they'll trot them out at the appropriate time and say, look, we have a trend of inappropriate conduct or uh, substandard care against this physician, and then they use that trend to sort of support the uh, adverse actions they're taking. As far as the National Practitioner Data Bank reports, there are specific guidelines that uh, hospitals and others must follow, and it doesn't necessarily require a specific paper trail, but they have to have some, yes, they have to have some documentation to support what they did. But I will tell you that the National Practitioner Data Bank uh, basically accepts whatever the hospital says as gospel truth. They don't uh, do any type of uh, questioning or investigation as to whether it was false charges or not. And uh, there's uh, really little that can be done to, um, to rebut that.
4: Larry, can you
0: give us just 30 seconds or a minute, an overview of what the National Practitioner Data Bank is, why it was created, and how it's supposed to to help the public in its role?
3: Sure. The National Practitioner Data Bank was created as part of the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act of 1986. The, The reported purpose of creating the National Practitioner Data Bank was to prevent incompetent and unsafe physicians from traveling from one state to another and uh, continuing to practice. So that was the, uh, you know, sort of the laudable purpose that was uh, used to create the National Practitioner Data Bank. But unfortunately, the National Practitioner Data Bank has really become uh, the thing that creates a local action by a hospital into a death sentence for the physician, the because once it's in there, it's very difficult. It's not impossible most times to get that data bank report out, even if it's a false report. And I do know that the National Practitioner Data Bank is aware that they get uh, improper, false reports, but under the law, they can't do anything about it.
0: And this process is then uh, separate from your state board of medical licensure, which won't necessarily submit things on to the National Practitioner Data Bank. Is that right?
3: You know, it's the other way around. The National Practitioner Data Bank is a federally operated data bank, and whoever reports, if a hospital reports to the data bank, they're required by law to send a copy of that adverse tax report to the state medical board within 15 days.
0: Oh, this is great. I'd like, to take a, I'd like to take a question or comment from one of the, the callers.
5: Hello. I am um, a trauma medical director at a Level 3 trauma center, and we're part of a network. There are three Level 3 trauma centers within our network, and our network hospitals have decided, uh, administration has decided, that they would like to have one lead physician be in charge of all trauma for the network. And he's taken the position that it is his um responsibility and authority to review all of our QI data for each of our individual facilities, which have their own individual medical directors, and he's become quite inflammatory about that and accusatory of the different programs, saying that he needs to evaluate our physicians, determine if they're practicing adequately, and he's accused one of our physicians of practicing below the standard of care and has sent those comments to administration and folks outside of administration within the hospital that really do not participate in any part of the trauma process, we have taken the position that our QI information is peer protected. There's nothing within our bylaws that we can find that indicates that it's necessary for us to share nor can we share our quality data outside of our facility and that it cannot be used for punitive purposes or to allow any facility to uh, encourage the squads to bypass accredited level three trauma facilities and only take patients to higher level centers, which would be his. Uh, any suggestions for how we might be able to combat this, what we uh, think is an all-out attack?
3: Well, it's very difficult because, as you know, you know these systems are kind of uh, merging to form these big systems, and they. Whoever is in charge of the big system wants to put their people in control of it. And uh, your medical staff bylaws sometimes will be made to conform to this bigger entity that is sort of a conglomerate. I would uh, only say that uh, the, the best thing to do in opposing this is to make sure that you gather enough positions at your facilities to get together and express opposition to what's going on. The one thing you don't want to do, and this is true of physician whistleblowers as well, you don't want to be the single person out front leading the charge, because they will reliably look to kill the messenger in those cases um, and get rid of that position usually by some sham interview process. So whatever you do, it's best to you know gather numbers together and use the group of physicians to support the opposition.
5: We do have that already. We have all three-level trauma facilities that are meeting on a regular basis. We have the full support of all of the physicians at each one of those institutions. Uh, We just don't know uh, what our position can be reasonably with the um, head physician of the higher-level trauma center.
3: Again, I don't know what the legal hierarchy is there. if there's like exclusive contracts that apply or or something of that nature. So it would uh, it would it would have to be looked at. You might even want to have your group uh, hire an independent attorney to look at it and see what
5: your options are. righty. thank you.
1: All right, well, and uh good. Larry, one one other thing I've seen, so you're you're involved in one of these contentious processes and and the hospital says, Well, well, here's our hospital attorney to give you some advice. Uh what do you think about that process?
3: You mean the hospital attorney wants to give the medical staff advice or an individual physician?
1: Yeah, well the person who's the subject of this peer review action uh or, or an outside peer review and, and is told, you know, that the hospital lawyer will give you some advice, but that person is obviously conflicted on who their loyalties are to.
2: Yeah, well, the physician shouldn't listen to that at all.
3: As you as you point out, it's a, it's a blatant conflict of interest. The hospital is the prosecuting entity, and you don't want the prosecutor to be your uh, representative as far as legal representative. And that's uh, the, the physician needs to go out and hire his own independent attorney who is well versed in peer review and sham peer review realize that when you go to the yellow pages or you look for you know attorneys and that represent peer review matters but a lot of times you're looking at attorneys who work for hospitals so you have to do a little bit of homework to see if the attorney is knowledgeable about peer review and sham peer review in particular and uh, before you hire that attorney, otherwise, I will tell you that the physician will end up spending tens of thousands of dollars educating his own attorney as to the dirty tricks, uh, the tactics, characteristic of sham peer review, and the various nuances that go on in the peer review process that, that the attorney would not encounter in a court of law.
1: All right. And it uh, looks like we have a hand raised. Uh, Mike Wagner, I, I think I just unmuted you. Are you there? So
4: first, Larry, I'd like to thank you. I don't know if you will call, but we've had several email interactions. It's been about ten years now. Um, I remember
3: I wrote a letter to the editor in the town where you are in Texas. Yes.
4: Well, I'm no longer there, so let 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 me, um, it, and I, I'm not trying to steal your your uh, show, but uh, let me address a couple of the comments that were made. Um, let's talk about the National Practitioner Data Bank. They can accuse you of wearing pink socks. Uh, and they didn't like them. They felt that was disruptive, and you can go in the National Practitioner Databank for that. And I did it, but I won't tell you the, the heartache you can imagine, Larry. It is next to impossible to get out of the National Practitioner Databank.
3: In fact, they, I, recall, I recall in your case that you went through a process and were exonerated within your hospital, and yet the hospital refused to remove. Well, data back report.
4: well, but what you are correct on that and what happened is first of all I was fortunate that this was all happening right around the, the time of the Polliner case so all the hospitals were running scared because for those of you who don't know Larry Polliner was a cardiac a cardiologist in Texas who won a $330 million verdict against three hundred and sixty
3: six million dollar verdict. I'm sorry, which he never yes. saw a penny.
4: Correct, but but it scared everybody into trying to do the right thing, and I benefited yes. greatly from it. Um, but the National Practitioner Data Bank, they don't have to do anything. The other thing for anyone that is looking at one of these, make sure that you have in detailed writing in whatever agreement that you do that exactly how the hospital can respond when you look for credentials at another hospital. Um, The institution with whom I had, shall we say, uh, a disagreement with uh, when I tried to get privileges at another institution um, used a very interesting tactic, which which I learned later, and I'm sure you're probably aware of this, which is, oh, um, you have to get a a special release in order to – for us to to tell you what's going on with this individual, and – Hospitals know that that's a red flag, and so automatically they go. I was very fortunate that the hospital I was dealing with at the time was extremely reasonable and let me get by without uh, having to get any documentation from the particularly involved hospital. So and, and this really that the
3: special release uh, from the hospital from which you left, they will what they want you to sign is something that you agree never to sue them for anything that they say or release to the second hospital.
4: Correct. Well, well. in my particular case, I had a, um, a confidentiality agreement, and they basically wanted me to sign that away, um, which basically is, what is it says the same thing. So um, this is, unfortunately, I can't tell you the name of the person who uh, got involved for the trauma surgeons that are out there. Uh, suffice it to say that his uh, name is on a textbook that's on all of our shelves. Um, and uh, this is something – I mean, everything that you said, and, and I stand here as as, as a victim and a, really a survivor, thanks in part to, to help from uh, Larry Huntoon, who we have here today, um, that this is it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. It's taken me um, basically 10 years to get my career back on track.
3: And the physician should understand there's a lot of blackballing that goes on so that when the hospital – that you're applying for privileges, uh, calls the hospital you left, uh, you know, the hospital where you left may say, well, yeah, he was here and he was in good standing from this state, and, and the rest we can't comment on. Or they'll make some comment like that that raises a red flag that makes it difficult in a lot of cases to get on staff elsewhere, even though you've done nothing wrong. So blackballing uh, orally over the phone from one hospital to another is a big problem.
4: Agreed. Anyhow, well, thanks again, Larry, for everything you've done.
3: Sure. And I, I wanted to make just a brief comment about the pink socks comment that he made. Uh, you should be aware that I don't think it was back in 2008, the uh, Joint Commission uh, changed what could be used, what evidence could be used to prosecute a position for disruptive conduct. And what can be used now is body language, facial expression, and tone of voice. All somebody has to do who doesn't like you is say, I find your body language or facial expression to be demeaning or intimidating, and that's all the so-called evidence that is needed to prosecute a charge of disruptive position or disruptive behavior against you. And, And that to me is shocking.
0: Larry, we had a breakfast session at the East Annual Meeting. It's been maybe five years ago. That's the first time I learned about, disruptive physicians what they were because it was two folks that I consider to be icons in trauma surgery who together were were hosting a breakfast session where they told their story of having been a disruptive physician and the whole process that they went through. And both of these guys were able to weather this in a way that was, uh, compared to today, I think, very straightforward back then. It seems like the the – the um The magnitude of the response these days to these allegations is is much greater than it was in the old days, much less tolerance and much more of a of a drastic response from the institution hospital when these allegations are made. Do you think that's accurate?
3: Yeah, I think it's gotten worse and I, to give you one example i I was aware of one pediatric surgeon who was involved in running the code. And it was an infant who was turning all shades of gray and blue, and uh, the physician asked for something that wasn't on the crash cart. And as you know, in a code situation, things can get kind of noisy. And so she raised her voice to be heard over the ambient noise so that the nurse would get something, a medication that was needed to help save the life of this baby who was turning gray and blue. And because this surgeon raised her voice, she was accused of uh, being a disruptive physician. They said she was yelling and screaming, and they took an adverse action against her based on that. And uh, had she not obtained the medication eventually that was needed, the baby probably would have died. It was the uh, baby of a uh, an attending physician. And so that's how just abusive it can get. If you raise your voice in the code... You ask for something that's not on the crash cart, You might be labeled a disruptive physician, and you might have some action taken against you
1: based on that. All right, Larry, and I'm, I'm going to ask you this question as a advocate, and just for everyone. I don't personally believe this, but but I think there is a lot of where there's smoke, there's fire, and I've heard that. You know, well, maybe half of these things are wrong, but but you know, good good physician or good surgeon wouldn't be involved in this peer review process. Uh, So there must be something there. Uh, Do you see a lot of that, and and how do you fight that?
3: Well, I think that's something that the perpetrators of Sham peer Review would like to promote, that if if there's an accusation that, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire. Uh, But I think the important thing is that the peer review committee investigates themselves independently as to what went on. One of the things that I see is sometimes there will be a choreographer of the sham peer review process. Oftentimes, the uh, vice president of medical affairs, chief medical officer, uh, they will come in and they will basically provide a summary of what happened that the physician allegedly did. And they mislead the physicians who are on these peer review committees. So it's very important that the physicians who participate on peer review committees do their own independent investigation so that they can be assured they're not being misled by someone else as to what happened.
1: We, we've heard a lot about, uh, you know, I think all the, the bad things that can happen and, and how the tactics they use. So so what are some of your key points for either avoiding this or, or for fighting this if you find yourself in the middle of one of these?
3: Well, in fact, uh, I wrote an article, an editorial on that of, w- of what physicians should do to be prepared or to defend themselves once it happens. It's in our um, Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, But basically, you need to be aware of your surroundings. You need to be aware if there are people who would like to see you gone. Maybe they're jealous of your success or patients that like you, or maybe it's an anti-competitive thing. You're competing against the hospital. You just need to be aware that those are things that can cause a target to form on your back. And I think it's very important that physicians uh, make good documentation in the hospital really important. You want to document things in the chart so if someone comes later and decides to prosecute you for something, that you have the documentation you would like to have to defend yourself. And I think that's very important. And as I said before, if you perceive that this is coming or if, uh, if a peer of the has just been launched against you, it's really important not just to ignore it, blow it off, get a, an Experienced attorney on board early, so that he or she
2: can help protect your due process rights.
1: In fact, I think you mentioned that uh, your your committee does some some free review or assistance with this. What are the other resources available to the physician or surgeon faced with this?
3: Well, I think the most important thing is education, and I think that AAPS, our Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, we've really been out front and been the leaders in trying to educate physicians. And it's not just education for the victims of sham peer review. It's education for those physicians who serve and perform good faith peer review on committees as to what to look for as far as the tactics so they're not being misled. Uh, We do have, as uh, for our APS members, uh, about 60-some volunteer physicians who are able to provide external independent reviews within specialty. Uh, I mean, there may be some cost to that because, of course, it's not just the review. It's the fact that the physician would have to provide a written report and then testify to support the written report. Uh, But we do have that external review uh, available. And, of course, AAPS has filed many amicus briefs in support of physicians who have been victims of sham peer review.
0: Larry, I have a specific process question. In the case of a suspension, which at our institution is a joint action by the CMO and the president of the medical staff. There is a period following that during which there is to be an investigation. And that investigation is to be followed by either a meeting or a hearing of the medical staff executive committee. Can you comment please on whether you think that meeting or hearing of the medical staff executive committee should include the accused should it be a hearing in the true sense where the accused is there to plead their case or is a meeting of the medical staff to review the evidence adequate to determine whether a suspension should be upheld
3: yes the um the answer is in your medical staff bylaws and what you'll find is The medical staff bylaws usually stipulate that the investigation following a summary suspension must be completed within 14 days. And the ad hoc investigative committee, it is uh, generally they will have an interview with the accused physician where the accused physician is allowed to present his side of the story. That interview, however, as specified in the bylaws, does not constitute a hearing nor does Does the physician have the same rights that he would have under a formal peer-review hearing? So it's just an interview, an opportunity to tell your side of the story. The ad hoc investigative committee then comes up with the recommendation, which they provide to the MEC, the Medical Executive Committee. And the Medical Executive Committee then decides whether to uphold the summary suspension, lift the summary suspension, or modify it in some manner. The key thing to note is the time frame. The, uh, you want the summary suspension to basically be adjudicated on or before 30 days after the suspension, because if the summary suspension basically goes beyond 30 days, it gets reported to the data bank. So the HICPA law and the medical staff bylaws are designed so that the summary suspension should be investigated and some determination made uh, within a period of uh, less than 30 days.
0: And are there cases where you think? I guess it varies institution to institution whether the accused physician is permitted to have their case heard before the medical executive committee. Does that ever happen? Because we just changed our bylaws. Yeah,
3: yes. Work yes, exactly. wording from a lot hearing of times to it's meeting. Discretionary. That is, the MEC can decide whether to invite the physician or not to tell his side of the story to the MEC. In some cases, I see that the MEC just excludes them. You know, they don't want to hear from the accused physician. So the the specific answer is in your individual medical staff bylaws. It's not a hearing at the level of the MEC. It's merely an opportunity or an interview, an opportunity for you to tell your side of the story before the MEC makes its final ruling, whether to uphold or not uphold the summary suspension.
0: Which is then followed by a fair hearing.
3: Yes, if they decide, if it's an adverse action, that is, they decide to continue the summer suspension, then you're entitled to the fair hearing under the medical staff
0: bylaws, rules, and procedures. One could allege that once the medical staff executive committee rules, a panel of peers elected to serve as the medical staff executive committee has ruled. Isn't it unlikely that a fair hearing panel is going to overturn that?
3: Well, that's a good question. The other thing you have to realize is in this day and age, uh, the Medical Executive Committee is often composed of physicians who have a financial relationship with the hospital and who are loath to bite the hand that feeds them. So I'm talking about paid directorships, exclusive contracts. As you know, the MEC is composed of the heads of various departments, and sometimes those are paid directors. Sometimes they have exclusive contracts. So. You can't always depend on the MEC to be impartial. Uh, they will want to do what the hospital wants them to do so as to maintain their financial relationship with the hospital. And, again, in the sham peer review process, uh, oftentimes the peer review panel is selected uh, so that they can the hospital can count on them to find the way that the hospital wants them to find.
0: You could allege the same of a fair hearing panel, I suppose, couldn't you?
3: Yes, absolutely. In fact, I mean, if you if the hospital or the MEC, and the MEC is composed of mainly hospital-affiliated physicians who selects the hearing panel, I mean, the selection of the hearing panel is the whole ballgame. And a lot of hospitals don't have what's called voir dire. In a court, there's voir dire, which means that someone can uh, raise objections about specific members of the hearing panel because they have – a bias or some conflict, that often doesn't happen in
2: hospitals.
1: All right, we've got a great question from uh, Omar Danner. Uh, Omar, I think you're unmuted now. You want to go ahead and ask your question?
4: Yeah, uh, Larry, uh, enjoying your talk. My question is, which one is the better choice to go ahead and sign the release of medical records and your rights to prosecute? Or to simply withdraw your medical privileges while under uh, this sham investigation, and move forward and defend it from there with legal representation or without legal representation.
3: Well, first of all, there is often no moving forward if you decide to resign while under investigation. That gets reported to the national practitioner database. It's an adverse action report from the National Practitioner Data Bank, and it's a very big black mark on your career. You'll find that when you go to apply to another hospital, they'll look at that, and they'll look at you as damaged goods, and they will reject your application. Now, if you go through a formal credentialing process in the application of privileges to another hospital, and they decide to reject your application for privileges, that also gets reported to the data bank you can see how the dominoes start to fall. So I think that resigning while under investigation or uh, without the peer review process coming to a conclusion, is a very bad decision and one that could end your career. Uh, physicians who um, you asked about signing the release, uh, that puts physicians in a very bad position because if, if the hospital done a sham peer review against you, you might like to – um, have the opportunity to sue them, and what the hospital is looking to do is put you in the position of, look, we're not going to release any information to another hospital that they need to evaluate your application unless you sign a complete release and agree not to sue us. That's a very difficult position to be in.
1: So, Larry, we have a we have a, a great comment from Mike Wagner about how you know these fair hearings are often anything but because they don't they're not obligated to use science or literature. Uh, one other tactic I've seen is, is they call someone in and they say, you know, you were hostile or you were demeaning or, you know, sexually inappropriate, but they won't say who made the complaint. Uh, you know, you'll have no chance to confront that person. Uh, they'll say, you know, the, the person doesn't feel comfortable being known, so so you have this, you know, nameless, faceless complaint against you that you have no way of defending. Uh, have you seen that tactic used commonly, and, and what do you do for that?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the... Uh, sort of foundations of due process and fundamental fairness is the ability to confront your accusers. And obviously, if it's an anonymous person, you can't confront an anonymous person. And I will tell you that oftentimes what hospitals will do is you'll say, look, I wanna confront this person, cross-examine this person in the peer review hearing, and you should produce this person so I can do that. What the hospital will do is say, We refuse. We're not going to produce the witnesses from the hospital that you want us to produce. And uh, recently, our AAPS general counsel, Andy Schlafly, uh, really uh, won a precedent-setting thing in the case where he compelled the hospital to provide witnesses that the hospital didn't want to provide. It basically gave the physician's attorney subpoena power in the hospital. So hospitals use that a lot. They say, "Yeah, we're not going to produce the people you want to cross-examine," and it is totally unfair to have an anonymous complaint and for someone just to accept that and for the physician's attorney not to have the opportunity to cross-examine.
1: Yeah. So, so this is this has really been a great session, Larry. We have to wrap up in a few minutes. Uh, I'd like to. I'm going to ask a final question, and then we'll open it up for any final questions from the listeners. Uh, you've obviously seen a lot of physicians involved with these processes. Can you just talk about some of the impacts you've seen this have on the physicians? We heard, we heard from from Mike about, you know, it took him 10 years to get over this. You know What are some of the impacts you've seen on the physicians who are targeted in these investigations?
3: Well, the impact of a physician who's been through a sham peer review and is reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank is usually devastating. Oftentimes, those physicians end up working at Walmart, or as a real estate agent or somewhere else. And I will tell you that some of them uh, end up committing suicide. And I have unfortunately had personal experience uh, with uh, a physician who committed suicide as a result of a sham peer review. So it, it does happen. I'm aware of a number of suicides. It just, it's a terrible thing. And not to forget, it has an adverse impact on patients because a sham peer review often deprives patients a good ethical position. So it has a a bad impact
2: on patients as well as physicians.
1: All right. Well, uh, we're going to try and turn this into controlled chaos. So for everyone on the line, I'm going to unmute everyone if anybody has a final question or comment.
4: No, I just want to thank Larry. I mean, I, I think until you go through this, you have no idea. When this happened to me, I was totally naive. I went straight to the library i'm you know a, 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 what I would consider to be an academic surgeon, and I got reams of of uh articles to defend everything that I did and they basically looked at me and said, We don't care what the literature shows i mean that was that was point blank what I was told we don't care what that says. we just don't think you should have done it that way um so you you have nothing to stand on I was like I said, I was blessed by polliner. Uh, that his timing came at a perfect time. I had great support. The other thing that I would recommend is, uh, and Larry, your comments were very well taken, is not only get a good lawyer, but if you can find someone, um, and I'm not trying to plug for anybody, but I, I, I became best friends with basically the guy that saved my skin. Um, find an MDJD who truly understands the medicine uh, as well as the law.
1: All right. Well, well, uh, I want to thank well, thank you a lot, Mike, for sharing your experiences. And, and Larry, we really appreciate it. This was a great session. Uh, we'll also have some supplemental material and links to some videos of Dr. Huntoon speaking on this topic, so some great additional material for everyone. Thank Thanks you. a lot, Larry. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Matt and Andrew. It's been a great pleasure.
1: Oh, My pleasure, Matt. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that
2: all you need to do is look to the East.